You are what you eat. Hi, I'm Bunny Hayes. I'm a graduate student in interdisciplinary studies with a focus on sustainability at the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. I am making this podcast today on behalf of Health Promotion Policy Development and Advocacy Class, PHPB 635. Since most socioeconomic and environmental problems can be viewed as the results of bad policy decision-making, this podcast wants to address support for policies relating to school food programs and children's health. In this arena, we can look at post-secondary success as a social determinant. You are what you eat. Still, after all this time, you are what you eat. How many generations have said this to get their children to eat their green beans? You can't leave the table till you eat your vegetables. Well, thanks to the Nutrition Labeling Act of 1990, a guideline was determined which would demand disclosure of all ingredients of each food product. The addition of nutritional information was to be visibly labeled, especially that of trans fat content. At the time, decision and policymakers were afraid the obesity rates and diabetes rates would continue to rise if they did not implement and enforce this act. Well, let's fast forward 30 years to 2020. Childhood obesity rates have tripled. Childhood obesity is a pandemic. This is a serious public health issue that is not going away. So, is there any to be held accountable for this? Some might think that the U.S. Department of Education takes care of our children's health with school breakfast and lunch programs and summertime meal programs. But in fact, the federal government role in education is limited because of the Tenth Amendment. That leaves most educational policy decision-making with the state's gubernatorial agenda and local levels of budgeting and funding. The Center for Disease Control suggests that schools play a significant role in children's nutritional well-being because children spend six hours or more a day in the school setting. They suggest children are to receive at least half of their nutritional needs from school meal programs, as some children may not have access to food outside of their daily school life. The school setting has been determined as a place to educate the children and promote well-being. The messages about good nutrition and ways to practice making healthy food choices originate in schools, but then follow the students into their family and community lives. You are what you eat. Let's stop for a moment and reflect on what our students' family and community lives look like. Currently, America is facing a challenge like no other before. We have a virus that is quite contagious. Public health officials determined to help curb the spread of the virus, they would close public school systems temporarily. So how does this affect our students? I contacted Julia Bauscher, the Director of School Nutrition Services for the Jefferson County Public School System, JCPS, here in Louisville, Kentucky. I asked about the impact on our students caused by this temporary closing of schools. Ms. Bauscher said it is easy to conclude, 
especially with so many people out of work, that the food insecurity we worry about regularly is even worse now. She is sure food that the JCPS is offering to students is important, but she is also worried that she's only feeding about 20% of the students that she normally feeds on a regular school day. On one of those regular school days, she agrees childhood obesity along with food insecurity are major childhood issues. When asked about the current priorities on the health agenda for students, Ms. Bauscher says JCPS is currently focused on mental health and wellness for our students, providing more personal supports for them. The department, the nutrition department, remains focused on healthy school meals that meet the USDA nutrition standards and are appealing to students, where she adds, this includes finding many ways to season foods and testing new menu items with students before they are added to the menu. Since school food requirements for school meals are based on current dietary guidelines for Americans, which means less fat, no trans fat, less sodium, and appropriate calories based on age grade groups, the school meals contain more whole grains and a variety of fruit and vegetables, including minimum requirements for certain vegetable subgroups, including our dark red oranges, green leafies, and legumes. When asked about a sufficient budget to be able to focus on quality, healthy food choices for JCPS school food programs, Ms. Bauscher praised school nutrition professionals' ability to make the funding work. Although more is always welcome and needed in the line of funding, we make what we get work. We need to figure out as a community how to ensure students are exposed to healthy foods outside of the school's cafeteria. Students are less likely to eat foods that are unfamiliar to them, and that, that could be something as familiar as kale or romaine lettuce. So, policymakers and decision makers, when you hear statements about the need for community involvement in providing healthy food choices for children, please remember not only to support legislation involving school nutrition programs, but also programs that are working to solve food injustice. Well, aside from nutritional concerns and food justice, technology is a growing factor in childhood obesity rates. Screen time has become a norm to the child of 2020. Even though healthcare professionals suggest only two hours a day of screen time, we know our children spend much more time on the screen than ever before. And to add to this problem, once again, we have our virus lockdown. COVID-19, with the closing of school systems, has led to the non-traditional instruction of our students through the internet. I estimated that with at least six lessons a day and 30 minutes a lesson, um, we've just added up to three hours of extra screen time to the daily routine of our children's lives. Will somebody please think of the children?
Let's do that while we take a quick break and have a healthy snack. A healthy snack that's fun and easy. Drain a can of tuna, break the tuna apart in a bowl, add cream cheese and mix. Serve with crackers and a lettuce leaf over the top. Add carrots to the side. Quick, easy, tasty, and healthy. Remember, you are what you eat. We're back. You are what you eat. So while on break, I thought about the children. I wondered what their take on school food nutrition would be. And since I have some kids home because of the COVID-19 lockdown, I decided to ask them what they thought about their school lunch experience. I let them start talking and recorded some of their insights. Uh, they had Papa John's uh, pizza every, I want to say Thursday. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, and, we did a thing like that yeah, at my school. And out of nowhere, like out of the next year, it changed. I, every Thursday, I was looking for, you know, Papa John's pizza, but mm-hmm. they, they never had it, you know? Uh-huh. So it, it, they came up with this, like, this little... Those alternative pizza. It was like oh, circles. like those little round ones. Yeah. These were gross. Yeah, they were like weird. Round pizza. They had like <laughs> like three pepperonis. Yeah, on it. yeah. It was like it wasn't the best school food. Like yeah. this, but I would eat it. You know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I'd, I'd be hungry. You know, there'd be some days where you know nights where you know there wasn't food available. You know, uh-huh. so the only thing that looking forward to was you know. Uh, school food you know some school food wasn't all that bad oh yeah, yeah no like, i definitely like didn't not like i didn't hate it like i, I definitely ate school lunch for like yeah. almost all of middle school and a little bit in high school i think i just kind of stopped eating food at school in <laughs> high school um but like I, I still occasionally would get food um it was interesting how it like changed though. Yeah. Like I feel like when I was in elementary school, the food that they served us was like very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and like the little vendors that they had, you know, they, like I, I've seen hot Cheetos there at school that I've never seen in the shelf in, oh, really? uh, in regular stores. Like I've never seen like baked hot Cheetos they would oh, have it, yeah. yeah yeah because they like in order to give us snacks they had to be like right. a healthier version because yeah they always have those like baked potato yeah. chips that are not good yeah those, they always had the baked chips are so gross. But, and they had like <laughs> they had baked hot fries oh really? baked hot fries and like that is so interesting like, pe- like people come in with hot fries like all, regular oh, hot yeah. fries all the time mm-hmm. and the fact that they had Baked hot fries, the quote unquote, sound healthier. Mm-hmm. They they knew they knew what they was doing because they knew kids like hot, hot fries. fries. Yeah. So why not make it healthier and we can make? I like school food overall. You know, it's just they 
I feel like the way they saw it is we have to be. Yeah, That's... no, it definitely always felt like there wasn't really feel... like nutritional effort yeah. put into it. Because um, I feel like because when Michelle Obama, you know, uh, she she did her fair share in like uh-huh. school uh, lunches, you know, and honestly, I saw a difference. But if uh, if some, but if they gave us, you know, the right thing, if they gave us a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, mm-hmm. you know, that, and the school's peanut butter jelly sandwich was pretty good. I, yeah, I, did they I, have I, like the Uncrustables? Yeah, your... Uncrustables. Oh my gosh! Oh, Shout out to Uncrustables. Right? No, I <laughs> still buy them. Man, well, and like another thing was like I've been a vegetarian for I think I want to say like my last two years of high school, and I didn't really eat very much like from the cafeteria, but usually everything contained meat and if you told them that you didn't eat meat they would just give you an uncrustable like that was your option um as a main course like they very rarely had like like just like vegetarian options or like even just like vegetable heavy options you know um yeah One time um, in my, I think it was in my, it was either in my philosophy class or in my film studies class. I can't remember because I have the same teacher for both. Um, We watched a documentary discussing um, school lunches in France in comparison. And actually in France, lunch is a class and they're taught like food etiquette and they're served like multiple course meals and it's like a class where like they talk about you know like what the food is and like the correct ways to eat it and ways to prepare it and like you know it's it's more of like a a class instead of just like send all the kids into the cafeteria so they can talk and munch on chicken nuggets Apple slices are like not real apples. Like they no. had no flavor. Like, like the I, packs of apple slices that they would give out. Yeah, I, because they definitely stopped giving out just like whole pieces of fruit and they yeah. definitely started giving out more like packaged, like portioned mm-hmm. out things. Like, I, like you bite into an apple, you expect to taste all the like juice. Like, yeah, like an yeah, apple. Like, and you bite into those and they taste like chemical, chemical water. Water. Yeah. No, they like, literally just tasted like chemical yeah, water. It's like they taste- Yeah. Um, oh, I was gonna bring up um, because schools also offer like breakfast. Yeah. Um, and that was always something. Just like when I was younger, I didn't understand because I it never occurred to me that there were people who didn't have the option of eating breakfast at home. And I think like because like a lot of kids got breakfast. I mean, there were like times at school where I went and got breakfast just because I was like, oh. Yeah. And um and they would give us in high school they would give us those whole wheat pop tarts yeah and I just remember like everyone would have those like yeah every like first period there was always like five yeah. people eating a whole wheat pop tart or like trading them or like yeah. things like that yeah. like break uh school breakfast 
it wasn't that bad uh-huh. to me, in my opinion. Like, yeah. except they did have like it seemed like general, like generally breakfast food, you know, yeah. and, and the whole wheat pop tart stuff. You know, that was it's a great that's a great investment that actually will fill you up. Uh huh. No, but might not taste the best you know yeah well because like another thing was like when we did have like when schools have the deals with like papa john's like we were only allowed to have their whole wheat crust um which i never noticed until one time i ate papa john's outside of school and i was like this tastes different and then i was like i found out that it was because like the crust was different um and I, i do think it's interesting that like they're allowed to give us more commercial food products as long as it's like a whole wheat yeah. crust just like the uh like you as a parent you ask you know is this healthy and they say it's whole wheat yeah <laughs> is, is, it, or is it healthy uh it's whole wheat you know yeah <laughs> and i i think i do think that's like an interesting thing is like the guys of um you know just like whole wheat as a label <laughs> um which i mean like yes it is better than you know just like straight up white bread you know it is less processed there is more nutrients yeah. to be gotten from yeah i don't i don't recommend white bread yeah i, I don't and i, don't I trust it yeah all. and I, I do think it's good that schools have things like that where they're like oh we can give this to you but only if it's like the whole wheat version like i think that's a, a good thing but i don't really think it's like fixing anything or like yeah. it, it's not really like like it is it is better but it's not yeah, great right. it's- i feel like nutrition like to get on the subject of what this is about like i don't necessarily think nutrition was considered i think a lot of it had to do with money and like distribution contracts and things like that especially just with like when food changed at school um and also you know like feel like going from like when you were a kid feeling like they were actually like making some of the things in house to yeah. when like you know in high school there definitely was not a single thing on that plate that they made in house you know like or maybe they like heated up the green beans yeah. but like everything else was definitely just sent to them frozen and it was all just like heated. Um, on like holidays, like on Thanksgiving. Yeah. They would have like little turkey, like have stuff yeah. in and stuff like oh that. Oh my gosh, I remember yeah, that. I remember that stuff. Um, yeah. But like you said, like when it comes to nutrition, I think they shied away from that a lot. Uh-huh. Money and distribution, because we see that some stuff is not important to the government than other stuff. You know, exactly. we can see that with like the food and even with the uh teachers like retirement fund you know that we can we can see by that like money isn't really a focus in schools yeah like they're they're really not putting enough money into schools in order to like Mm -hmm. fund things correctly and i i definitely think like the food they serve they, is definitely in that. They give you a, a Chromebook before they give you a nutrition. Like yeah, meat. before they give you a salad. Before they give you like right. roasted asparagus. Right. Like, they, yeah. Well, and that's like another thing just with like 
in school lunches, like I do feel like frequently they were using like the cheapest ingredients, especially because like when you are making food for a vast amount of people, you, you know, yeah. you buy in bulk and usually you buy what's cheapest. Yeah, quantity is like over quality. quality. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, because yeah, I do always feel like, especially as I got older, just like the school lunches they fed us kind of deteriorated. Like it was always very processed meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, like, you know, the thing about like the pizza that they served us at school deteriorating. Cause I remember when I was in elementary school, they had these big square, like rectangle pieces of pizza. I remember that. Yeah. And those were interesting. Yeah. And those, and they only like after, I think maybe they gave us those once in middle school. And then they did have like a lot of schools had the Papa John's deal. Yeah. And then they switched to those little round pizzas. Yeah. And I always felt like that was a weird, I was like, why can't they bring back like the giant pan pizzas? Yeah. Like the little square pieces. Yeah. I felt like it was as if they made it in the back. Yeah, no, those definitely. It it didn't feel fake, you know? Sometimes it was a little overcooked. Yeah. Sometimes it was was like perfectly cooked, but it seemed like it was, you know, they actually cooked it in the back. Yeah, that's one thing is I feel like when I was younger, the food definitely seemed like it was more like made at the school and it kind of like differentiated school by school. Yeah. And I actually, I remember one time I, uh, I got Papa John's and I got their whole wheat crust on purpose because I was like, I want it to taste like, like when it was at school. Yeah. <laughs> I want them to stay. Yeah, I was like, I, I, I want, I want it. Yeah. Bring me back. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you guys, I thank you so much for sharing, like, so much with us. Like, uh, parts of this will go into my podcast. Um, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh, um, hi, I'm Blakely Hayes. <laughs> <laughs> um, John Ricketts. Um, shout out to Uncrustables. Especially as like an adult vegetarian, um, me and my best friend Rachel constantly buy Uncrustables, especially because we work at the movie theater and we're next to a grocery store. Okay, listeners, that was some insight into the perspectives of those who have been impacted by the results of policy and decision-making concerning school food and nutritional health. I would like to thank our in-house guests, John Ricketts and Blakely Hayes. Your input has been greatly appreciated, and we wish you both future success in all your endeavors. In this podcast, You Are What You Eat has looked at the world of children's health and nutrition. We've assessed the situation through an academic lens and the lens of those directly affected by these issues. Looking through a governmental lens, we see that just this week, a federal court had to strike down a 2018 Agricultural Department proposed rule made by our current administration that would reverse school nutrition standards for sodium content and whole grains. It should be clear that children's nutritional health needs remain the same, regardless of what party is in control in the government. I want to thank Julia Bauscher, Director of School Nutrition Services for the Jefferson County Public School System in Louisville, Kentucky. 
Baker and events have kept Miss Bowsher very busy with temporary changes concerning the routine of the daily school life. Even though Miss Bowsher was unable to meet with me in person, she took time to respond to my questions via email. I thank her as her responses were invaluable to my podcast. I want to thank my in-house guests, Blakely and John. I want to conclude the first episode of You Are What You Eat with these words. To make system-level changes that are going to affect the childhood obesity rates, we need to enact policies that stem from a variety of areas of interest. Childhood obesity issues can no longer be attacked through the traditional medical field alone. Along with funding for school nutrition programs, legislation should also focus funds on issues of social and food justice. Thanks for listening. I'm Bunny Hayes, signing off. And remember, you are what you eat. There is a problem in the heart of Louisville. They don't have a grocery store nowhere near here. They got what what they call grocery stores, which is just like a little corner gas station building with processed food. You know, everything is sky high. The people that work in them don't seem like they have no respect for us. We live in a food desert. Uh, We have to, especially if you live in the West End, you have to travel further to get the things you need, things that are fresh, things that are even maybe organic. People who are in walkers and wheelchairs and all that, where are they going to go? I mean, you know, if you need a fresh onion for your spaghetti or your chili or a fresh pepper or any such, you got lost. Thanks for joining today as we discuss food deserts. My name is Cece Rayleigh. I'm a graduate student at the University of Louisville School of Public Health. This project was made possible by Professor Brandy N. Kelly Pryor for her course, Health Promotion, Policy Development and Advocacy. To help us better understand our topic today, I'm doing something slightly different. So you will hear a Q&A with Megan Bell from a recent interview she had with the program Girl Hustle, available via Apple Podcasts. But she will actually be answering the questions that I have for her about food deserts. Don't fear, guys. You are still in for a huge dose of inspiration. Megan Bell is an African-American entrepreneur, wife, and mother of three, one of which you will hear during our talk today. Mrs. Bell is a Louisville native, and having experienced the food desert phenomenon herself, decided to tackle West Louisville's food desert problem head-on. Through crowdfunding, she intends to raise the necessary monies to open the largest Black-owned grocery in West Louisville's Russell neighborhood. Having dedicated the last three years learning the ins and outs of the grocery industry, Mrs. Bell has a goal to open the Next Door Market in 2021. She is also the founder of the nonprofit organization Virtuous Women of Empowerment, a group dedicated to grooming future women entrepreneurs and creating opportunities for others to be on the forefront of change. 
So let's dive right in with Mrs. Bell. I always get weird looks when I say food desert. Uh, So yeah, just start us off. What is a food desert? Well, a food desert is basically like um, a, when you think about it, the urban community, in in just about every urban community around the states, uh, not just West Louisville. When you think about food deserts, you, when you are only able to get to um, a gas station and get your food or like a family dollars, or maybe only like one or two grocery stores that's not affordable, that doesn't have the fresh quality affordable foods, where you only get in, where there's only like fast foods around in the neighborhoods, like McDonald's or something like that, or Wendy's. Uh, you may have uh, black-owned uh, restaurants, but they're still pushing uh, really bad healthy eating because fried foods, ribs, and different things like that. So when you think about food deserts, those are the type of things that you'll see in food deserts. So, for instance, West Louisville, there's really only two real big grocery stores. Save-A-Lot is gone. Bayou Mart is gone. There's really no rainbow blossom at Whole Foods. There's never been one. Uh, you know, all these the is down there. Huh? Pickpack closed as well. Yeah, Pickpack is closed. And when you think, I mean, so really there's only like two available grocery stores right now. And it's still, to some people in the community, it's still not affordable. And then sometimes, uh, depending on where your location, if you really pay attention to these big chain grocery stores, uh, they don't put, you know, fresh food, fresh produce and different out because they know people in that type of location won't buy it. So, um, basically, that's what a food desert is. Just because, and that's what people need to understand, just because there is a grocery store in those type of areas does not necessarily mean that it's not considered a food desert. If they don't have any other option, then it's considered a food desert. Awesome, Mrs. Bell. Thank you so much for uh, letting us know what a food desert is. Uh, The importance of solving food deserts is critical. The 2019 Health Equity Report shows that households who are food insecure are at greater risk for health issues such as obesity and households with children. That quote we just heard from Bunny, uh, you are what you eat, rings even more true. Children who are obese tend to become adults who are obese. It is incredibly difficult to maintain a healthy diet in a food desert as there is limited access to fresh food. So thinking about the high stakes this problem creates, How did you come up with the idea of a grocery store? I mean, in East Louisville, you know, we all know the financial capital is there and there's no hesitation to open up a grocery store. In opposition, West Louisville is low income, as we just heard, as many food stores have closed as have opened. So how did you come to the solution of the next door market? started going live or whatever. Um, I grew up in Newburgh, so, and uh, a 
a black community, low income, people on government assistance, and different things like that. So um, being a being raised in that type of environment, not having uh, an accessible grocery store, not having resources, not enough resources, you know, different things like that that we grew up not really having, you know, has given me um, the idea and the passion to want to open a grocery store in a community that I'm very familiar with, uh, which is the Ralston neighborhood. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's basically where my idea came from, but I also was able to do a lot of research um, also with food deserts in other urban communities as well, all over the states. So it's really not like a lot of black-owned grocery stores anymore. Um, I think there's like one that's trying to open in Atlanta, and then there's one that's trying to open in Denver, and then there's one here. Uh, and then you may have a lot of black-owned, like, um, I wouldn't call them grocery stores, but more of like, just like a market where they only sell certain type of items. But even then, it's still, um, it's not a grocery store where people, it's not like the next Kroger's or anything like that on the next Whole Foods. So that's basic, basically where my idea came from, being around, growing up in that type of environment where, you know, the only thing that we really had to eat was, uh, that was provided for us was uh, fast food, gas stations, different things like that where we get our food from, mm -hmm. junk food and different things like that. So my model for the grocery store is more eating, more healthier. And, you know, really putting uh, the, the food education around that uh, for our people, especially in the black community that has a lot of health conditions as far as, you know, diabetes and different things like that. So the grocery store is due to open in 2021. Um, and from what I've read about you and the interviews with both local and national news, kudos to you there. Is there anything in the pipeline ahead of time to either market the grocery store um, or provide some sort of relief until the store actually opens? Um, so this, this summer I had decided, you know, well, what can I do right now that could really show people how serious I am? Because with the grocery store, you know, you have to have your crowdfunding and all that stuff to get it going, uh, you know, Building, building relationships with other big corporations and foundations and stuff like that just to get it going. And I decided to do something that I can use my own personal investments in to get it going. So this summer I had decided to open, which is coming in May of this year, even with everything, the pandemic and all this stuff that's going on, uh, opening a mobile grocery store. Where there's actually, Kroger's has one here in Louisville. Um, but it's not as, it, it, it was really part of Dare to Care. Dare to Care came up with the idea. Um, but it's really, really popular in the West Coast. California, Colorado, Denver. I mean, not yeah, Colorado, Denver, Arizona, all in the West Coast. And there was a girl that I had, I was just doing my research because I was coming up with ideas that I could do. And I said, what can I do? What can I do? And I came across this article because I read all the time. And there was a girl um, in Oregon uh, at Whole Foods. She started, uh, well, now Whole Foods takes over it. 
but it's their first mobile market. Uh, it's called Mashri Groceries. And she started this. And I just read her article and understanding how Portland, Oregon is also dealing with food deserts and they're dealing with food insecurity in their in their community. And the only thing different about hers is that she had a Charlie. Like her grocery store was like a Charlie with it was like a grocery store. So it was like neat. And I'm like, how did she do this? Like how did she get the money to do this? And different things like how did she even do that? But then I, I, I read up on it, and she was able to partner with Whole Foods to get it done. Now Whole Foods has, you know, over it. But it just, like, really inspired me to come up with that idea. And then I stopped doing research on it, and I just realized it's never been done here. And I said, well, you know, everybody's excited about the grocery store, but I wonder how would they feel if they had a mobile grocery where you go into people's neighborhoods uh, that have no access at all to grocery stores and you park and you pull up with this big old truck and you you know people can come onto the truck and shop and it's a grocery store so that's actually where my my idea came from but it's my vision is completely different from hers but that was my inspiration to do it so uh, I was able to use my own personal investments and get me a, a really big truck it's a really big red truck and uh, was able to uh, get my refrigerations, about to get my refrigerations and stuff on, and I'm, I'm going to remodel the inside of a truck to look like a grocery store. <laughs> so people will be able to come on and shop and uh, go grocery shopping. Like, they'll be, it will be like a grocery store on wheels. I plan on having at least two or three while the grocery store is open as well because you know, I don't expect people to, you know, we have this real nice grocery store. People are just going to be willing to get up and go out. And, you know, with the situation that's happening right now with the uh, pandemic, global pandemic with the virus or whatever, you know, it's going to be very hard for, for senior citizens and people with disabilities to be able to still get out and, you know, for their safety. Uh, it would just be a better way to do it. And we'll also be having like fresh meals on the truck and we'll be providing delivery services. That has never, I would say, it's been doing my research and talking to other community leaders in West Louisville centuries since they had deliveries like this before. So this would be like a comeback in West Louisville for this to happen. So I'm really excited about it. Part of what we're uh, learning in Dr. Kelly Pryor's class is advocacy. So we identify a social problem, uh, pretty much is you know why I chose food deserts. It's something I'm I'm passionate about. But you know we evaluate policies that can possibly be applied to solve the issues and uh, determine a path towards uh, solution. So what was your process? towards deciding uh, who to approach or network with. I mean, I know a great deal of your startup has literally come out of your own pocket, but going forward, how have you planned on sustaining and growing and uh, building those connections? A lot of it was, you know, I talked to people, women in my family first, I let my family know what I wanted to do just to, to make sure that was the right thing to do. But then it was just more of uh, social media is a very powerful tool. And I was already friends with some women that 
were speakers and different things like that. So I would reach out to them and, you know, talk to them and say, hey, this is what I want to do. And just getting advice and mentorship from that. And that just really built my relationship. And I was able to, when I met one woman, they gave me another woman's information and say, hey, you need to reach out to her because what you, you want to do, you can add this person. And then my, my resources are started overlapping just within, within a year. So um, I guess it was more of people really seeing what I was trying to do and the passion that they had already seen in me. Thank you so much. Uh, so when we look at uh, how we all kind of need each other, you know, how Louisville has, um, and I I hate to say it, but, you know, we have always been a place where there's quite a bit of segregation and, and division. Uh, so when thinking about how to reach out to entities outside of West Louisville, I mean, what can be done as a city uh, to alleviate the food desert issues in West Louisville? Uh, especially when we consider, you know, the social determinants of health, like income, education, age, and so forth. Well, I think we really need to understand what's happening right now with the uh, uh, gentrification, uh, people losing their homes, food deserts, gun violence, uh, you know, in a Russell, Russell neighborhood, 91% of residents are single mothers. We're taking black fathers out of our homes uh, and incarcerating them for a long period of time for minor, uh, you know, offenses. Uh, you know, just different things that we can, like, really understand why this is happening before we try to be heroes or before we try to get recognition for it. Um, I think... With the city, I get what they're trying to do as far as, you know, trying to build West Louisville as far as, like, you know, they rebuild a new terrace and different things like that. But I feel like uh, they're going about it the wrong way um, as far as the people who build that neighborhood are suffering more than people who have the, the income and the, and the wealth to, to live down there. Um and you're starting to see, if you really pay attention, you're starting to see what West Louisville is trying to do. And I get it. They're trying to bring in tourists. They're trying to look like the next the next uh, Nashville, uh, you know, where people come and just, you know, people from different states come for, you know, derbies, different things like that. And I get it. But um, I just think that we really need to start understanding what the community needs and what they want and their voices. And you have amazing people 
people already in one school more that are doing amazing things, but they just don't have the the wealth or the capital to do it. And I feel like if the city really starts understanding that the people that come from those neighborhoods, if you just give them the capital to do it, and it comes from them, they know that it's coming from them, that the people see that it's coming from them that looks like them from those type of neighborhoods, that it will be more successful than trying to bring that outsider in to do the job. You know, so that doesn't know um, West Louisville, that doesn't know the rest of the neighborhood are shiny or anything like that. And I feel like that's what the city is doing right now to keep bringing in people that are, are not from West Louisville to do these type of projects and, and um, jobs that people in, this, in, 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 in the community already has already tried to do, but they just don't have the wealth to do it. Yeah. And they need more resources to be able to do it. So um, that's how I feel with it. You know, with the grocery store, you know, I went to the city about it, and I'm going to be completely honest. You know, I guess because... One, I'm a black woman. So the stereotype of black businesses is already out there that, you know, a lot of black owned grocery stores that has happened in Louisville has only lasted no more than two or three years. So um, that was one of the things that I've learned is they was probably very scared of even wanting to hear my idea uh, because they have seen it happen so many times that they were afraid that they might that this might happen again. Um, and then two, how they wanted me to do the grocery store was not how I envisioned. You know, they wanted me to do it like Logan's Market. And Logan's Market is great, you know, for people that have money. <laughs> but it wasn't fit for urban communities that people that really need a grocery store that is affordable, uh, that, you know, it can really benefit. Um, so, uh, you know, they was just like, oh, okay, yeah, we not really feeling that. So I was like, okay, well, you know, it's okay. You know, I'm going to be successful in it anyway because if people see me, they know, oh, we know Megan. Uh, she comes from Newburgh. She comes from those communities. People will be more willing to come to me before they go to Kroger's because Kroger's wasn't originally, it's not originally from Louisville. So, you know, so it's just like, I really don't know what the city can really do because they have their own ways of how they do things. Um, I just know that in order for West Louisville to be how they think it should be or want it to be, they truly have to invest in the people that are already there and give them the capital that they need to be able to, or they can give them the capital, give them the research resources to be able to get that capital uh, to be able to do these type of amazing projects that are really trying to happen in Louisville. A community garden in the Russell neighborhood is trying to happen in Louisville. There are farmers in West Louisville that are trying to um, buy community uh, uh, garden houses, you know, to, to be able to grow their crops and stuff. So it's just like so many things that Louisville is people in what we're trying to do, um, but they just don't have the resources or the capital to do it. And I think once global, the city really starts to see how amazing these projects are and how where they are now and how they can 
you know, flourish if they have the money to do it and the wealth to do it. And I believe that it would be, you know, even more better. It would give the next generation that's in the community right now a chance to be able to have something for them as well. So as you know, uh, we're experiencing um, unprecedented times, uh, you know, with COVID-19 and everything. Um, So what lessons have you learned uh, over the last few months even? And what should we be learning, especially those of us who don't live in West Louisville and, you know, not dealing with a food desert? for that. Um, indeed, it has been uncomfortable for, you know, quite a few people uh, just going to the store and not being able to find items that we usually always have access to. Um, it's actually felt like we're at riot level at times. So thanks for driving home the fact that what we're experiencing for a mere three weeks, folks in West Louisville have had to deal with for years. So as you know, as I sit and I think about this, really, it's it's an enormous feat uh, that you're working towards. You know, my last question for you is: What can we do, just ordinary citizens of Louisville? What can we do to help you right now? So thank you so much, uh, Megan, uh, for uh, giving us the information we needed uh, to better understand food deserts, uh, who it affects, um, and, you know, really sharing your journey, uh, the things that you're doing in the meantime until the grocery store is is materialized next uh, summer, uh, 2021. And um, just uh, for folks out there listening, 
Uh, Megan does have uh, a social media page under development, and that will provide additional information about her mobile grocery store, as well as updates on the progress of the next door market. And let's understand, food deserts can be eliminated. And as Ms. Bell has so wonderfully illustrated, collaboration with key stakeholders, knowing your community and its needs, doing your share, your fair share of planning and research, and advocating for those policies, as we've learned through this course with Dr. Uh, Kelly Pryor, we can make a difference and we can ensure that across the board, uh, folks can have equitable access to healthy food. Thank you so much for joining us today. And till next time, peace. For more information on food deserts, catch my policy brief as I lay out the benefits of the 2017 Food Desert Act. Stay tuned as Morris Dolly discusses mental health in our schools. Hello, brothers and sisters. This is Morris Dolly. Welcome to my podcast, The Daily Progress, where we talk about policy or regulation that are implemented or being implemented to change the surface of the world one day at a time. So today we will be talking about a bill that was introduced to Congress on February 8, 2019 by Congresswoman Grace Napolitano and her fellow representative called the Mental Health Service Act of 2019. The Mental Health Service Act is a bill that will provide funding to public schools across the country to partner up with local mental health professionals to establish an on-site mental health care service for students. In my opinion, I believe this is a wonderful bill and it should be able to pass. But first, let's talk about mental health in general. Mental health or mental illnesses is like any other physical illnesses. It is on a continuous or severity ranging from mild to moderate or to severe. More than 60 million Americans have a mental illness in a given year. Mental illness affect one in four adults and one in five children in a given year. Very few people have ever actually seen treatment for their mental health. The stigma associated with mental illnesses is one of the biggest barriers that prevent people from getting treatment or retaining their, their treatment. Um, so mental health problem may be related to excessive stress due to a particular situation or a series of events. Um, as with like cancer, diabetes, or heart diseases, mental illnesses are often a physical as well as emotional or psychological. Um, mental illnesses may be caused by a reaction to the environment, genetic factor, or by chemical imbalances, or a combination of all these. With proper care and treatment, many individuals learn how to cope and recover from their mental illnesses or their emotional disorder. With that being said, let's try to get into some numbers and statistics. Because according to the National Alliance of Mental Health and the American Academy of Pediatrics, one-fifth of all children within the United States have some form of mental health issue. And about 70% of those children do not even receive any form of care, which is ridiculous. Um, this shows why health services is needed and it's important. 
Also, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, within one year of entering a mental health program, youth attending regular school increased from 75% to like 81%. And those receiving or passing grade increased from 55% to 66%. Also, behavior and emotional problem decreases by 31% among youth with mental health issues after six months of receiving care. And the number of students involved in like violent activities decreased by 15% within three years after being instated within a mental health program. Also, 16% of students report to a lower depression, 21% report to a lower anxieties, and 38% have a better behavior after being in the program for one year. Two tiers of school districts have reported that mental health services have increased within their school district. But the main problem that we face is that there is not enough funding to treat or not, not to hire professionals or to treat students dealing with mental health. These are the major reasons why mental health program and professional in a school-based system are important. And if this bill is passed, it will have a major role in reducing mental health among youth and adolescents within our nation. So now let's try to get into the bill. Um, the mental health service for students out of 2019 or this $200 million competitive grant will increase access to evidence-based comprehensive mental health program for the nation youth in local schools and community. It will also build on youth program, uh, program that incorporate promising practices in education, social services, local primary health care, and trauma-informed behavior health care to help the community take action in order to help youth and adolescents within need. So this bill will help address the need by providing up to two million in youth grant funding for each of the five years to revive, increase, and expand the substance abuse mental health service administration existing project, the aware state educational grant program for mental health services in hundred different school system. Um, this increased grant could help school provide much needed on-site comprehension school-based mental health services for students. So basically, um, this $200 million grant will provide 2 million to 100 schools within our nation to address their mental health program within their schools by um, promoting uh, hiring um, mental health professional or, or implementing a mental health program to help their school system and their community. Um, it is important because school administration teachers and other staff need support to respond appropriately to mental health needs for their students. And this bill will help with that. It will also minimize the social determinants among students with mental health within our community and in our school system. So this grant is important because um, it will help school partner up with a community mental health professional, including child and behavior psychiatrists to provide also behavior and mental health service for K-12 students dealing with trauma-informed and evidence-based mental health 
um, issues. Um, it will also provide an appropriate education development to school personnel to help recognize the early signs of mental health or behavior issue within the school-based system. It will also help local community to develop policy um, to assist students in dealing with trauma and violence. With that being said, this is establishing a mechanism for students and adolescents to report incidents of violence or planned by other students or adolescents or adults to commit violence. So now let's take a break and go to the quick commercial. We will be right back. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Louisville School of Public Health and Information Science. United we stand, divided we fall. Welcome back. Um, like I said earlier, if this bill or this past the mental health service for student ad could provide access to more comprehensive on-site training and on-site mental health services for the students. Um, it will also allow teachers to concentrate on teaching and providing like comprehensive cultural um, um, approach to like dealing with students affected by mental health. Uh, students at a risk of black behavior mental health disorders um it will also provide or promote positive mental health ed um, education and support the parents siblings and other family members of the children dealing with mental health disorder as well as um community members um so with the 200 million being um 200 million dollar in grant each schools will receive two million two million for the next five years to be able to educate and uh improve that community the entire community school system on the warning signs and symptoms of mental health to help identify the treatment before it escalate which is very important. If we can find, if we can find law, the early sign and early circumstance to help students function well within schools, they will, this will have a huge impact on, on helping the student deal with the issues. So, um, Representative uh, Napolitano, the main sponsor of the bill, um, at the introduction of the bill at the House, um, earlier, in February of 2019, um, she indicated that improving access to service for prevention, um, early identification and intervention to help countless youth in our community strive in school, at home, and within their life is the model that we should that should be extended to serve family across um, the nations across America, because. Helping our youth um, develop within their mental issues and finding a solution to their mental issue um, is the key to us striving for a better future because the youth are the future. They are the next leader of our generation. 
the next leader, the next leader of the world. So, and also representative um, John Kale also indicated that which he is one of the sponsors of the bill. Um, he indicated that in, even in Central New York and in other communities nationwide, um, there is a critical need to improve access to mental health and behavior health care within our school system. And having an early intervention and preventive mental health program that is like vital to treating and building a better life for many of our children and family nationwide who are impacted by mental illness is very important. Um, as these two representatives stated, um, this is a key issue within our nation that we are dealing with. With 60 million people affected by mental health, we need to step up as a nation and implement programs within our school that will help our students, that will help people dealing with mental health so we can have a better future for them. They, they are the leader of our next generation. They are the leader of the country. So we need to do something to help them. And I believe, in my opinion, and I believe this bill we do a lot with helping students deal with their issue. Um, so this is a key factor of why this bill should pass. And I believe if it is passed, it will have a huge impact within our community. Even the National Council of Behavior Health and more than 70 other organizations as part of the Mental Health Liaison Group have written a letter of support to the House recommending their strong support for the bill because they believe that it will provide financial support to enable local community into implementing a comprehensive cultural school-based mental health program within their community. Um, bring, uh, bring awareness of individual trauma and train appropriate staff into dealing, identifying and dealing with this trauma. It will also, in, also incorporate positive behavior um, intervention, family engagement, um, student treatment, and multi-generational support to foster the health and development of children. It will also provide technical assistance to local community with respect to development of programs. Provide assistance to com local community in the development of policy to address mental health, to address child and adolescent trauma. It will also facilitate community partnership among family, students, law enforcement agency, educational agency, mental health and substance use disorder service system, family-based mental health service system, um, child welfare agency, um, healthcare providers, institution of higher learning, faith-based community trauma network, and other community-based system. And lastly, it will establish a mechanism for children and adolescents to report incidents of violence. But like I said earlier, the bill has just been introduced. But in order for the bill to pass, it need to first pass through the committee, the House, the Senate, and signed by the President. So now let's take a break and go to the quick commercial. We will be right back. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Louisville School of Public Health and Information Science. 
United we stand, divided we fall. Welcome back. Now let's welcome our special guest today, Miss Ariel Hicks, where she will talk about her experience dealing with mental health and how she is helping other students deal with their mental health issue. Let's welcome Miss Ariel Hicks. Hi, Ariel. Welcome to the Daily Progress. Um, can you please introduce yourself, please? Of course. My name is Ariel Hicks. I'm a recent grad from IU. I was also in the MPH program there. Um, currently, I'm working as an ABA therapist or registered behavior technician, which is someone who does therapy for kids with autism. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. Thank you for coming to the show. Uh, with that being said, today we will be talking about a bill that was introduced in Congress called the Mental Health Service for Students out of 2019. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about the bill and talk to you about your experience dealing with mental health. Um, I'll be asking a few questions and please feel free to answer the question. Um, thank you for coming again. Okay. Um, so how did you feel when you were first um, diagnosed with a mental health issue? Yes, when I was first diagnosed with clinical depression and anxiety, um, it was definitely tough. I will say that I was kind of in that, um, you know, I was like, oh no, I think it was a guilt thing and I was just feeling ashamed at the time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that my doctor was trying to talk to me about in order to regulate it and help myself out, I ignored until it got to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. Okay. So it was hard to accept, but it's um, something that's become just kind of part of my daily routine in my life. And, you know, you get used to it and it works out for you. And this happened while you was in college? Um, yes, I had always kind of had feelings and low moods, but when I officially was told by a doctor, mm -hmm. that was, um, I would say my sophomore year of college. All right. Can you please help me understand what is it like living with um, a mental illness or mental health issues? Um, that is a tough question. But I think if I could explain it to someone, um, I would describe it as a very uncomfortable uncomfortable feeling. Every um, On the anxiety side of things, you feel very um, uneasy all the time. You worry about things that haven't happened yet. You put scenarios in your head. Um, you think like crazy. And it could be about one topic, you know, you could that you fixated on, or it could be about several different things. Um, and then depression for me feels like it's just like my mood goes from 100 to like negative 10. <laughs> um, one minute I'm up and, I'm, you know, you're good, you're feeling happy, but then the next minute you are really, really low. And you could be in your room all day. Um, yeah, I think it looks different for everybody, but I think everybody with depression can agree that it is super uncomfortable. And it just makes you feel like you aren't where you're supposed to be. So tell me about your experience in school dealing with mental health. So um, 
in school, mental health is really, really important because it honestly makes it very hard to concentrate. It makes it hard to be engaged. It just makes it hard to kind of be present, if that makes sense. And obviously at school, you need to be present in order to learn and to um, be attentive to what's going on. And I think for me, when I first really noticed um, that kind of starting to go away was my later years in high school. And I didn't take, I, again, back in the, during those times, mental health to me wasn't a thing. You know, you I wouldn't have known the difference between anxiety and feeling this way. I would just, everything was kind of in one category. But now that I know what I know um, and I look back, I can definitely tell that there were times, especially in college, where I would skip classes for days. I wouldn't shower for days, um, wouldn't talk to people. Um, if I did have to talk to people, you know, I would do the least of anything that requires the least amount of energy. Um, and it got really bad. So I think just by saying that, it can obviously shows that it contributes to your overall well-being as well. Um, but on top of that, you know, missing classes obviously makes you have poor grades and makes you miss content that you need to have. So it all added up and eventually um, made it very difficult for me to be the student that I knew I could be because the coursework wasn't the hard part, but everything else that was kind of going on in life and in my head didn't allow me to be there to do the things I needed to do. So you were not able to do your coursework in school? It was, it was hard. If I could, you know, if I found a time where I could sit there and concentrate to do it, then yes. But there's times where my mind would take a left turn and it took me, you know, an hour or two longer to do with an assignment. Are you on any antidepressant or psychiatric medication? Yes. Currently, I am taking Lexapro. And when I was in college, I was taking Zoloft. Um, was that helpful anyhow? Did it help you? So it was helpful, but the thing about um, antidepressants and or medic or anxiety medications is that you have to be very consistent with it. And when you're not and the drug is no longer built up in your system, then the effects can wear off or don't work. And so for me, it was good, but I had a really bad issue of staying consistent with my medication and taking it the way I needed to. Um, so I never feel like got the full effects of either. Um, the Lexapro I'm currently on, and that was a switch from about a couple months ago. So, so far so good, but I'm going to keep trying it out to see how I like it. All right. Um, are you currently seeking any help in terms of like counseling, in terms of, um, seeing a psychiatrist? On top of taking medication, medication for yes. yes, I am. I actually go to a licensed mental health counselor and she's phenomenal. She's actually, she specializes in art therapy, but we usually just do um, talk therapy, which works for me because I'm not super, I'm artistic in my own ways, but I don't prefer to do it as a form of um, therapy when I'm talking to her. Um. So during your time in school or in college, um, where did you have any support system or help? Yes. Um, I don't think that I would have made it without my support system. Support systems are very, very, very important for people that are dealing and battling with mental health issues. Um, one, because in that headspace, you don't really have the, mind, the right mindset to hold yourself accountable most of the time. And so having somebody else there to do those things is good. 
Um, and so for me, um, you know, I have my really close friends um, and my family who make sure, say, you know, oh, did you take your medication today? That's helpful. Or when I, you know, needed maybe a ride in college to um, CAPS, which is the counseling and psychological services that they offered. Um, one of my friends would take give me a ride to counseling. It was just, it was very, very helpful. And I think without that, um, I would have seen a, I would have been on a significantly different path currently. So it does, it does make a huge difference to have people and support of just not only your friends and family, but professionals as well. And I think that's why IU was great because they did offer that for every student. Um, and it was only twice a semester, but two is better than zero. And so for me, I use my two every semester um, until I finally found a um, therapist who I can go to consistently. And do you think there should be therapists or counselor available frequently? So whenever a student is dealing with like a mental health, they can see them right away? Oh, absolutely. I think that people in the trusted professionals in schools play a major um, role in kids and not even kids, but teenagers, young adults' lives when it comes to mental health things because you don't always want to share maybe something that you're dealing with with, you know, a parent or a friend and you might need that person. So I think it's very, I would, I strongly recommend it. Yes. Um, what do you think can be done for someone suffering from mental illness? Whew, I think that the solution or the answer to that will vary depending on the person, but some big things that can help anyone dealing with mental health and those that are supporting them is one, just always be being compassionate and showing others that you do care about what they're dealing with. Um, another thing is kind of spreading and raising awareness of what mental health actually is. I think right now, no, I'm sorry, I don't even think, I know for a fact that there's a huge negative stigma that's associated with mental health or mental illness. Um, you know, it always gets thrown into that category of, oh, the crazy people or what have you. And that language and talk of surrounding the topic needs to be eliminated. Um, because I think that also stops people from reaching out to get help. And it stops people from understanding in themselves what's actually going on. They're very quick, people are very quick to blame people or to guilt them and shame them for dealing with something. And it may not even be, you know, in their control. Most of the time it's not. So I think being compassionate and showing that, you know, you can have a, even someone who doesn't and will never or ever has dealt with a mental health issue, you can always show somebody that you care and that you are willing to be a listening ear of some sort. Right. So with that being said, how are you feeling right now in terms of like, how do you feel? I feel pretty good. Um, I won't lie and say that in the past week, I haven't felt kind of low. I won't say in the past week that um, I haven't forgotten to take my medication, but I will say that I'm doing everything that I can um, when I remember and when I um, think about it, when I'm, you know, on top of it, I do do everything I need to. And when I do, I feel like I feel 10 times better. So you said you work as a registered behavior technician or an ABA therapist. 
Um, how is it like working with kids suffering from like mental illness or dealing with mental issues within school? Yes. So as an ABA therapist, I work um, with kids with autism and autism is interesting because it's a developmental disorder. Um, they don't classify it as a mental disorder. But with that being said, a lot of the kids I work with have both autism and a mental health issue. Um, so for me, it's been extremely rewarding and it's taught me so much, um, not only about the kids, but about myself as well. These kids, I can't even really put into words the things that I see on a day-to-day -day basis, but behavioral wise, um, you can just tell that they don't really have a good grip on their emotions or how to handle things. So that looks like throwing chairs or books at teachers, um, you know, hitting or being aggressive towards other students when they can't get out there, when they can't express how they're feeling, um, just a bunch of different things. And so, um, you know, being in a classroom where there's maybe four kids with autism or some type of disorder, and then the rest are of their peers are typical developing kids, um, you, you can point out the ones who are struggling. And I think that goes to show that even being in this environment with school and they having that support, it is difficult for them. So I try my best to step in and be that person to kind of help them navigate through that easier. All right. So, well, thank you for that. Um, so what action do you think um, as a society we can take to help the, um, those kids um, deal with yeah, mental illness? Um, what do you think we can take as a society to like best help them realize that they are also part of society and support them? Um, I think outside of raising awareness about it, um, putting what you are taught into action. So not being judgmental um, towards people who, who are dealing with kids with, because the thing about kids with mental health issues and autism, um, their behaviors look a little different. And, you know, people are very quick to judge them and have something to say, but they need to kind of, like I said before, be compassionate. And I think as a society, people are not, really raising awareness. They say they are, but they're not. And that I need people to put those things into play. So especially for parents, I think parents need to also be, um, parents need to be more on top of what their kids are going through. I think a lot of kids are dealing with things secretly and they're not, you know, going to their parents for that support because maybe they're scared. Maybe they don't know what's going on. Maybe they're trying to figure it out themselves but they need to know that there's somebody who can help them. And I don't know that they always feel that way. So what is currently being done at your school um, to help deal with those issues? So outside of myself, which um, I'll explain my position in a little more depth. Basically, I work in a second grade classroom um, and I, Literally, I'm just working with the different students in that classroom who need uh, more attention due to 
an ASD diagnosis or a mental health diagnosis. And I'm just making sure that they're able to stay on task when they get frustrated, you know, I'm helping them out. Um, sometimes I take them for little breaks during um, class because it's hard for them to stay attentive for an extended period of time. So I might go and we might go into the sensory room, which the sensory room is a place that has toys and um, a bicycle, ropes, just things for kids to do, to get their hands on and to do, to kind of get their mind off of school for a minute. Um, and so outside of that, there are also a couple of different positions in the schools like social workers, um, psychologists, and so forth that help with these kids. But um, right now that focuses on what we're talking about. I would say we are um, doing a program where the social worker has been coming in, um, reading books to the kids and talking about different things to deal with their social, emotional, and behavioral health. Um, she's shown them a chart and the chart basically um, says, I feel, and it's a blank. And the kids are allowed to write, you know, what word they're feeling for today. So when the teacher walks around, she can see, okay, today John is feeling sad. So that's going to let her know how John's going to be behaving or probably it lets her, it gives her an idea of what John's behavior can look like based upon how he's already stated he's been feeling. But then it also as teachers and myself, we try to talk to John and see if we can um, help him get through and talk through to us those feelings that he's having. Um, so, yeah. Um, so what can our our leaders, social and government implement or put in place to help with mental health, to help or to help with these issues within schools? So one big, big thing that our leaders can do is provide funding. Because without funding, without money, um, nothing is really possible. Um, and that's only because we lack the resources, the staff, um, and the financial support to implement certain things. Um, I think right now that, you know, I think there's like a group of maybe six people who focus on the behavioral aspect in this school, which is a lot compared to some other places that have none. But even with our staff, that ratio to the amount of kids that really need support is not enough. So um, right now, well, right now, the bill has been introduced into Congress um, called the Mental Health Service for Student Act. Um, of 2019, um, this bill will be able to like provide funding to like public um schools across the nation to partner up with like local mental health services or local mental health professional uh within their area um um to establish an on-site mental health care service for students within these schools. Um, so I just want to know your uh, what you think of that. I think that the bill is great. I think that it hits a lot of the key things that um, are issues currently going on that we are seeing in schools currently. Um, my favorite thing about the bill is the fact that it's going to go from K to 12 or that that's the age range that they're looking at because the younger you can start intervention, the better you will be. And that's honestly for anything. I just think that's the most successful treatments always come from starting at the younger age. Um, you know, I think something that 
It's unfortunate, but it makes sense is that um, right now with the bill being said, it would only have 100 schools, I think, that they're going to be looking at um, to implement this bill. And unfortunately, 100 schools is not that many in the grand scheme of things. It's just not. But I understand it because with funding, you have to start somewhere. And so I think that it's um, great in that capacity. I am hoping that the schools that they choose will be ones where there's more of a need. And that can mean that um, poverty, higher poverty levels, um, kids, minority kids, um, low income communities, just communities that are really lacking those resources. Um, I think that those should be the ones that are first hit because there's going to be a greater need um, for these kind of services. And another community where I think that this bill would be super beneficial um, are those that we see a lot of um, crime and violence. Um, children and the young adults who are dealing with this kind of trauma, um, it leads to significant damage mental health wise, I think later down the road, if they don't deal with these things um, while they are young. Um, because there's a lot of times that in these communities, these kids are getting no help or no treatment or seeing no one after seeing some of these vicious and um, heinous crimes that are happening. So I think that if there was someone to go into those school systems and talk to them and help them work through those problems now, um, the better off they're going to be in the end. Um, thank you, Ms. Aria Hiss, for coming on the show. Um, we really appreciate you sharing your experience and your opinion about mental mental health and the necessary and some of the necessary steps uh, needed or required um, to improving the life of the youth and people dealing with mental health um, or mental illness within our nation. Um, once again, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for Thank having me. Thank you so much. So now let's take a break and go to the quick commercial. We will be right back. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Louisville School of Public Health and Information Science. United we stand, divided we fall. Welcome back. With all that being said, in conclusion, we can see mental health is very important and we need to take the necessary step and precaution to help students deal with mental health in school. Early interventions are very critical for the success of mental health treatment. Schools are important setting to help identify mental health problems early. Schools also can be crucial provider for, of mental health services for students, especially in rural communities because there is a limited amount of resources. Um, with early identification and treatment, mental health disorder can be addressed before significant impairment occurs. If left untreated, this disorder can lead to academic failure, family conflict, um, substance use, and even suicide. So I will leave you with this. Education is the foundation for a healthy future. Schools need more support to address the mental health needs of students. Their bill is essential step in that direction. With the Mental Health Service for Student Act, thousands of students can be assisted with treatable mental health issues 
open up new possibilities for themselves and their family. So I want to say thank you and thank you to our special guest for coming on the show, Miss Ariel Higgs. Tune in next time. Do not forget to subscribe, leave comment, suggestion, feedback, and your opinion about the bill. See you next time where Ms. Shahana Johnson will be talking about expungement policy in the state of Kentucky. Thank you and have a wonderful day like always. You might have heard the statistic that the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the entire world, with one in three of its citizens having a criminal record. However, it might surprise you to hear that there are people living in the United States with criminal records despite having their charges dropped or dismissed. Yes, that actually happens to people every day. See, when a person is arrested for any charge, a criminal record is started as a result of the arrest and it is not removed until the court is petitioned to expunge the record. This is significant not only because this procedure is a severe infringement of individual civil liberties, but also because having a criminal record significantly impacts a person's lifelong trajectory, as it can decrease an individual's ability to gain employment, secure stable housing, and access public benefits. It also impedes their ability to pursue higher education, be involved with family life, and vote. In response to the exponential increase of individuals with a criminal record, many legislatures are looking to pass expungement laws. I'm Shiana Johnson, and this is a special podcast episode created in conjunction with my colleagues at the University of Louisville for our PHPB 635 course on health promotion policy development and advocacy. Today, I'm going to explore the political, legislative, and social context for the increased interest in legislation around expungement within the United States and the state of Kentucky. Let's begin with what expungement actually entails. The American Bar Association defines expungement as the process by which a record of criminal conviction is destroyed or sealed from the state or federal record. In other words, when expungement is available, it allows individuals to have their records wiped clean so that they have a chance at a normal life without the barriers associated with a criminal record. The expungement process and associated costs vary from state to state, which can create confusion for individuals eligible for expungement. In Kentucky, the expungement process is complicated and costly. For starters, expungement is only available for misdemeanors and certain Class D felonies. Those with a qualifying charge must wait five years and no more than 10 years after the end of their sentence, probation, or parole to apply. And to remain eligible during this five-year waiting period, the applicant must not incur any new misdemeanor or felony charges. Once those prerequisites have been met, an individual must submit an application for eligibility and then file for expungement. An applicant has 30 days from the time an application is granted to the time they must find legal support to file for expungement. This entire process costs a minimum of $290, which is comprised of $40 for the application for eligibility and $250 to file for expungement. This does not include any legal fees that may occur, and these fines must be paid for each chargeable offense. In a recent health impact assessment conducted by the Center for Health Equity out of the Louisville Metro Department for Health and Wellness, cost was cited as the number one reason eligible individuals do not seek expungement in the state of Kentucky. This is incredibly important because Kentucky's incarceration rate has grown by 312% since 1985, despite crime rates dropping by 26% during that time. 
Overall, Kentucky has the ninth highest incarceration in the country, with roughly 37,000 people in prisons and jails throughout the state. Kentucky also has the second highest incarceration rate for women in the entire country. These high incarceration rates are due to a 72% increase in admissions for Class D offenses, which is Kentucky's lowest felony class. Due to the overuse of felony charges, Kentucky has a recidivism rate of 32% for those who have been incarcerated, 40% for those who receive probation, and 52% for those who receive parole. The total annual cost for Kentucky's correctional facilities comes out to 628 million taxpayer dollars. And unless something changes, incarceration rates are expected to rise by 19% over the next decade, which will certainly continue to exacerbate costs. You might be asking, why isn't anyone doing anything to stop this? And if you're asking that question, you'd be in good company. To combat the high number of people impacted by having a criminal record, there are currently two expungement-focused bills going through the Kentucky State Legislature. House Bill 222 and House Bill 327 are both focused on providing automatic expungement for certain Class D felonies and misdemeanors. When asked about the absence of automatic expungement laws, State Representative Kevin Bratcher, who sponsored House Bill 327, was cited as saying the bill, quote, correct something that I certainly did not know was going on, and I'll bet you that most of your constituents don't know, end quote. But how did he, among other legislators, not know this was happening? How do we get to a place where there is such a disconnect between locally elected officials and the criminal justice system that affects their constituents? And isn't there more that we can do? To answer that and more, I want to take you through a brief history lesson beginning in the 1970s. During this time, Richard Nixon started the War on Drugs campaign to combat the crack cocaine epidemic, which was increasing homicide and overdose rates in urban communities. The initiative sought to criminalize drug use and frame drug users as moral degenerates who were abusing the social welfare system. This campaign was in direct conflict with the feedback provided from the team of advisors Nixon had hired to research drug use. According to the team's research, the root cause of drug use was due to one's immediate personal environment, including poverty, institutional and personal racism, pollution, and other urban crises. So why did Nixon ignore the team's research? There are two simple reasons. The majority of crack cocaine users were black, and Nixon needed a way to control the communities of color that had recently gained civil rights during the 1950s. And he wasn't the only one. In fact, one of Nixon's predecessors, Ronald Reagan, continued the trend of using incarceration to police communities of color and other undesirable members of the community. During his presidency, the prison population increased from 329,000 to 627,000. Numbers continued to rise during the Clinton administration with the passage of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, more commonly known as the 1994 Crime Bill, which authorized the death penalty for dozens of new and existing crimes, instituted the federal three strikes policy, and increased state prison rates through truth and sentencing laws. These truth and sentencing laws offered states $12.5 billion in grant funding to increase their prison rules and build prisons on the condition that those who were incarcerated served at least 85% of their sentences. 
1999, 42 states had truth and sentencing laws on the books, which contributed to the widespread practice of using three-strike laws, mandatory minimums, decreasing the use of parole, and the removal of judicial discretionary sentencing. The power of these policies and incentives cannot be overstated. The rapid expansion of prisons and jails has created a system where entire sects of the economy rely on mass incarceration to survive. How? Two-thirds of all correctional spending in the United States goes to personnel costs, such as salaries, overtime, and benefits. Commissary vendors make $1.6 billion a year selling goods to incarcerated people. Bell bond companies make $1.4 billion off of defendants and their families. Phone companies vie for contracts, enabling them to charge up to $25 for a 15-minute phone call. And because the incarceration rates are so high in Kentucky, the state pays economically depressed counties to build jails to hold individuals awaiting trial, which can be the only money coming into the economy depending on the area. With so many people benefiting from the continuation of the current criminal justice system, it is no surprise that there is a comprehensive list of reasons Kentuckians can be arrested and charged. For example, misdemeanor charges, which are punishable by up to a year in jail and up to a $500 fine, include not having auto insurance, failing to get an updated license after a move, minor possession or distribution of drugs, petty theft, and illegal gambling. Felony crimes are typically reserved for more serious things such as homicide, rape, and abuse. The increase in the number and types of chargeable offenses for misdemeanors and felonies has resulted in the number of incarcerated people growing by 700% to 2.3 million people, with people of color and those living with a lower income being disproportionately affected. How this breaks down is one out of every three black boys and one out of every six Latinx boys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. This is compared with one of every 17 white boys. Similarly, one in 18 black girls and one in 45 Latinx girls can expect to go to prison in their lifetime as compared with one in 111 white girls. In Kentucky, this correlates to black people representing 29% of all incarcerated individuals despite only making up 9% of the population. And Latinx people represent 6% of the incarcerated population but only make up 3% of the total population. The disparities don't stop there. Individuals experiencing poverty have a greater chance of being arrested and are more likely to endure pre-trial detention. This is because people with lower incomes typically live in poor communities, and living in a poor community means that when individuals are arrested, they are more likely to receive a bail charge. Overall, only 39% of Kentuckians who are given bail are able to afford to pay the charge. This means that the 61% who cannot afford their bail charge must stay in jail until their hearing date. Being detained in jail can result in additional challenges for detainees, ranging from job loss to being more likely of being convicted of a crime in the future, which further compounds the effects of poverty. Now that we've discussed the impacts of having a criminal record and the disparities within the criminal justice system, let's talk about what we can do to fix it. On March 27th of this year, House Bill 327 was passed into law. The bill gives states 30 days to automatically expunge criminal charges that have been acquitted or dismissed at no cost to the individual. While this is great news and a step in the right direction, this bill is acting in response to the criminal justice system. In order to truly change things, we need comprehensive reform that is proactive instead of reactive. To make that possible, we have to move away from a one-size-fits-all system, and there are many ways to do that. 
However, I'm going to explore the top three solutions that I think will best address over-incarceration and excessive arrests plaguing the current system. First, we must decriminalize and reclassify low-level crimes and offer alternative sentencing. In terms of reclassification, nonviolent and low-level crimes, such as minor theft, should be moved to the infraction level, which don't require any jail time but often come with a fine. However, community service could be offered as one alternative to replace these fines for individuals who would be unable to pay. This would leave misdemeanor and felony charges to more serious and violent crimes, such as murder and sexual assault. Regardless of the type of charge, we need to increase social services and emphasize alternative sentencing. For example, drug treatment facilities can be used to combat substance use disorders. Mental health courts can offer services to those living with a mental illness. And rehabilitation programs can offer individuals the opportunity to receive therapy, get a GED or pursue higher education, and increase job readiness while being incarcerated. Such programs are known to reduce recidivism rates, lower costs, and increase health outcomes. Second, for those who enter our prisons and jails, we must reform our criminal justice system by removing truth and sentencing laws from the books. This will allow for sentencing ranges to be recalibrated, give judges the power to offer lower sentences, and remove statutory financial incentives for mass incarceration and arrests. Lastly, in combination with removing truth and sentencing laws, Kentucky lawmakers must move the cash flow currently funding the increase of state prison and jail roles to community-based programming aimed at reducing crime and improving well-being. These three policy solutions have been implemented and tested in eight states, California, Connecticut, Michigan, Mississippi, New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and South Carolina and they resulted in a 14 to 26% reduction of incarceration populations with no harmful impacts on public safety. A 14% reduction of the incarcerated population in Kentucky would see 5,180 individuals released, and a 26% reduction would release 9,620 individuals from jails and prisons in the state. And these policies could keep countless others from ever entering the criminal justice system. So all of this sounds great, right? Well, the best part about all of this is that you, dear listener, can help to make these changes happen. By calling and writing to your local officials to let them know you support these policies, we can all work to raise awareness and get bills passed. You can figure out who your legislators are and leave them a message at 1-800-372-7181. Again, that number is 1-800-372-7181. And if you're more of a hands-on kind of person, there are several local nonprofits that could use volunteers, such as the Bell Project, which provides free pre-child bell assistance to eligible individuals living with a low income, or the Kentucky Community and Restorative Justice Project, which offers alternatives to traditional criminal justice sentencing and pushes for policies and practices that keep people out of the criminal justice system. Lastly, you could help the American Civil Liberties Union of Kentucky lobby and advocate for criminal justice reform. No matter how you choose to get involved, please know that your efforts really do make an impact. This podcast was recorded edited and fact-checked by me, Shiona Johnson. I want to give a special thanks to my husband James for his support, to my classmates Morris Dolly, Bunny Hayes, and Cece Rayleigh for their feedback and encouragement, 
and to my professor, Dr. Brandi Kelly Pryor, for giving us the space to explore our interests and grace on our deadlines.